Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. We join you from the margins of the International Anti-Corruption Conference in Washington, D.C. The U.S. strategy on countering corruption has been a major focus of this, of this conference. So we took the opportunity to speak to Paul Massaro, a senior policy advisor to the Helsinki Commission, who has played an important role in shaping the U.S. response to transnational forms of corruption. In this interview, he talks to Liz David Barrett, about the role international enablers in the US and Europe play in promoting transnational corruption. They then discuss the Enablers Act, legislation proposed in the US which will make life much harder for actors such as lawyers, trust and company service providers and accountants, who have often been central to corrupt schemes crossing national borders. Paul and Liz talk about the domestic politics of the Enablers Act, as well as the other policy options available to to disrupt transnational corruption particularly in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We hope you enjoy the episode and thank you for listening. Great, so I'm really delighted to have Paul Massaro here with me today. Paul, can you tell us, how did you get interested in this whole issue of corruption and what motivates you to keep working on it? Sure. So I guess I guess I need to preface everything by saying, you know, I'm speaking in a personal capacity, not speaking for the U.S. government, not representing, you know, any individual commissioner or the commission or, or anything else. I work at the U.S. Helsinki Commission, led by nine senators and nine representatives. And, you know, I mean, when it comes to corruption, corruption is the manner through which authoritarian regimes operate. So it's, it's kind of the rails on which authoritarianism runs. And the way I view it, when you know, the big picture, of course, there's a lot of, there's a lot of smaller battles and even, and even very big wars to win at the moment, <laughs> you know, particularly uh, the Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Um, but when it comes down to how do we build kind of the world that we're trying to build, it's all about fighting corruption. I mean, you know, without, without corruption, we wouldn't have this war. Without corruption, we wouldn't have the Chinese Communist Party. Without corruption, we wouldn't have the Iranian mullahs and so on and so forth. I mean, it's the it's the basis, it's the foundation of all authoritarianism. And it's, you know, it's come into our societies. I mean, it, the, the way I read it, uh, the, the end of history happened in reverse, in a sense. Sort of the, 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 the Cold War ended, we integrated with these systems in the hope that our systems would triumph. We had, a, we had definitely a very deep notion of triumphalism at the time. Um, and over 30 years, I think we've seen the opposite. I think we've seen a lot of dirty money, blood money, infect our systems and impact our politics. And I've seen our politics become more like authoritarian politics. And that's the R, when I say R, I mean the democratic world, you know, the democracies of the world. So to me, it's, it's, what, it's what it's all about at the end of the day. This is the real war. And you, know, do you, you talked about the, you know, the end of the Cold War there. Um, you, do you see this in terms of, is this a new Cold War? Well, I mean, look, it, it, I, I don't like the term "new Cold War." Like, I mean, it is, but but I, but it's but it kind of it's a it's it's problematic in the sense that it, it indicates that we're going to be two hermetically sealed blocks again between sort of authoritarianism, and that's just not how it's going to be. It's it's obviously very different than that. We have highly integrated financial systems, uh, in particular, but highly integrated economic systems, global supply chains. All of that's not going away. I mean, you know, to to to, to truly fully fundamentally decouple from authoritarian regimes would be a decades long effort uh, or else quick, but extremely painful. <laughs> you know? um, 
And uh, I, I just don't see that happening. And I think that there's, there's also, um, I think, gains to be made for democracy in maintaining some level of integration. I think if we are able to purge the blood money from our system, it behooves us to maintain this level of integration with, or a level of integration rather, with, with states, with a, with a whole host of states that may be semi-authoritarian or semi-democratic or whatever, so that we can um, push them in the democratic direction, help them to fight corruption and so on and so forth. I mean, the, the goal at the end of the day should be the end of authoritarianism or rather the curbing of authoritarian tendencies. I always prefer curbing corruption, curbing authoritarianism, because you never actually defeat it. That's the, that's the bottom line. Is it's, it's eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. You, every day you have to wake up and fight this fight, because the day you don't is the day they're back. <laughs> you know? So you framed it very much as authoritarianism against democracy. Mm -hmm. But you also mentioned that actually democracies are also often quite responsible for this. So mm -hmm. can you tell us a bit more about that aspect? And in particular, we often talk about enablers. And one of the big yes. pieces of work that you've been working on is the Enablers Act. So can you tell us about you know, what that is and yeah. how you see it developing? Yeah, the enablers in my mind are our, are our worst enemies in a sense, because, you know, I mean, there's, there's sort of the kleptocrats, the authoritarians themselves that, you know, steal all the money and sort of loot these states. And, you know, they, I mean, the idea, the, 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 the essence of modern dictatorship uh, is to, you know, steal in your country and spend in the West. You know, it, it's kind of like it, it enables modern dictatorship. It relies on access to democratic states because there is kind of this infinite looting potential. It's like you can keep stealing and stealing and stealing and pushing it through the global financial system and hiding it in particularly Western capital markets, which are, I mean, you know, between the USA and the UK and the, and the EU are just unfathomably deep. You know, I mean, you can, you can after you launder it and after it's sort of cleaned, you can keep pushing money forever into these, into these places, which leads to this kind of, a, kind of, there's never an incentive to build the rule of law in these states then, right? I mean, it's like when, when one, I mean, in my sort of humble opinion, the origin of the rule of law comes from, you know, elites competing and ultimately agreeing that they need a set of rules, <laughs> you know, um, and then eventually that set of rules becomes accessible for everyone. And over time, you know, it, it just, you know, continues to be more accessible, more accessible, more accessible. But then it never happens because when they need their uh, arbitration, they just go to London. You know, <laughs> you know like, like there's no, there's, there's absolutely no need to ever develop even basic institutions in these places. So you can just keep on looting and keep on looting. And we are responsible for that. I mean, I mean, it's, of course, and, and, and when I say that, I want to say they are responsible for that, right? I mean, the guys that are looting are responsible. But like, we should know better. Like, they, they require access to our systems. We take a little, you know, fee. And I'm, when I say we, I'm talking about sort of the, the lawyers that, that help build out the shell companies. And really, the lawyers are the worst. The lawyer at the, at the center of every single global money laundering scheme, you'll find an Anglo-American law firm. And they're always Anglo-American. It's, like it's like the top 200 Anglo-American law firms that are always at the center of all of these. Um, and then there's the investment advisors that help get into hedge funds and that sort of thing, which are usually, again, the lawyers are the center of this. They hire out everybody else. So they get the, you know, the, the investment advisors and the real estate agents and the accountants, and you build a whole kleptocracy team to help you access this market. And then, of course, you use the various wonderful anonymous financial structures that we have on offer, like up until very, very, very recently, and, and it's kind of still ongoing, U.S. anonymous shell companies, which you could you know, build endless chains of to kind of obfuscate your ownership of something so that no one knew that you owned it is kind of the kind of the bottom line is how so you use this. lots of enablers what do we do about them well we have to we have to set rules we have to disincentivize this behavior i mean i mean at the end of the day 
you know, there's, 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 there's laws and there's norms. And I guess those things together make the, the rules, you know, and I think that both of them, you need to play on both those playing fields. So we obviously, as someone that works for the Congress, I think a lot in terms of laws, but another big thing lawmakers and politicians do is set is speak about norms and speak about what people should be doing. So, I mean, you need to have a, a basically we, you know, in the, in sort of the transatlantic space in the democratic world, we need to build a society where, first of all, you're going to get hit with huge penalties for doing this kind of thing. But, the, but, the, but of course, the risk there is penalties become a cost of doing business. So, so, so you can't just have penalties. So you need penalties, but you also need it to just be morally reprehensible and unacceptable to do this kind of thing. And, and obviously, it's very hard to make something morally reprehensible when it's legal. <laughs> so, and that's kind of when, I mean, look at the structure of like DC, right? I mean, the, the revolving door and constant like people going from government to lobbying to government to lobby and then lobbying for authoritarian states. That's another big enabling problem. The authoritarian revolving door is a huge national security risk. But, you know, these things are not illegal. So they may feel morally reprehensible. But for the most part, people just keep doing them and kind of say, well, that's, that's how the system works. I'm just playing the system, you know, so you do need to make them illegal or set the regulations. But then that needs to be followed up with and, and really coincide with a really strong moral argument and moral push that, you know, like if you're a lawyer, you should look at other lawyers that work for these guys and be like, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't, yeah. you can't be working for these guys, you okay. know? I mean, this should be the same thing. Like, you know, I, I know it's like you're, you're, real estate professionals and whatever, you know, everybody's, well, he's trying to put food on the table. I get that. But if somebody walks in with $5 million in cash, just ask basic questions about where they got it. You know what I mean? It's just like, 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 first of all, it's such a small percentage that at the end of the day are really involved in this kind of stuff, right? I mean, so most people are fine. So you're going after a small percentage, but these small percentage ruin it for everybody else. Because once you start taking the blood money and dirty money, then there's pressure for other people to take it and other people to take it and you ruin the entire market. And that's, I mean, that's how it corrodes the system at the end of the day. That's what corrodes democracy. So what's the Enablers Act? What's the idea behind this? How so, are you so the Enablers Act it? is really the most simple common sense thing in the world. And, and when I tell you, you're going to be like, what? You know, it's like, it, 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 it brings the United States up to date with our financial action task force, sort of the international um, <clears throat> kind of standard setting body for anti-money laundering, which the United States led the creation of, and the United States actually helped to generate these, what are called the 40 recommendations, kind of the, the standard of this thing. It finally brings us up to date with this after kind of like 20 years of this endless discussion around this, so that these particular neighbors, and, and, and we're, we're, we're targeting a very small slice. We're targeting lawyers, targeting trust and company formation agents, and accountants with this piece of it. Okay, so some of these, some of these other enabling professions are being taken on in different ways. But it makes them do what banks have had to do. Banks have to ask basic questions about suspicious clients. Like if you, if you walk in with a bunch of like millions of dollars in cash, banks will be like, hey, you know, like where, where'd you get that? And, and, and guess what, and I mean, the, the most amazing thing is, you know, once, they, once you've answered those questions, you can still take the money, and banks do. <laughs> you know, but, but, but it creates these tripwires. It creates a, it creates a sense of, Ooh, maybe I shouldn't be here. You know, like once you, once, once the lawyer asks the basic question, the basic question is, hey, you know, like, where'd you get that money? And not even any leading question, where'd you get the money? You know, then that guy's like, oof, let's get out of here. You know, let's go, let's find somebody that doesn't ask questions, you know, and that's what you want. You want that kind of question asking culture. You want people to be like, 
hmm, you know, is, is this someone I really want to be in business with? Because at the end of the day, you don't want to be in business with these people. Okay, but they can ask the questions. How do they verify the answers that they get? Well, I mean, they get, they get put into this, you know, the, the information collection system. I mean, one would have to ask what these, you know, what, what the actual system would look like, right, for collecting the information. Because with banks, it's suspicious activity reports and customer due diligence, right? So it's like an AML program, an anti-money laundering program, and then the customer due diligence program. But we have left it open, okay? We've left it open. We've said we're giving, with, with this piece of legislation, we're giving the executive branch the authority to create these kinds of programs with the understanding that there will be long rulemaking periods that could last. I mean, you know, there, there's been a lot of this has gone through enormous discussions. Basically, in the original draft of the legislation, it was like, all happens in one year. <laughs> you know, well, it's like, like even, even Treasury is like, well, I don't know, you know, we got a lot to do. And, and I mean, you know, it pushed out to like, you know, five years in the Senate draft. And then also beyond that, like the notion that, okay, well, we're, at first we also said, so this is like the legendary uh, story you've probably had on this podcast before, like the, you know, the real estate in the USA it was like in the Patriot Act, like that real estate professionals would have to do, mm -hmm. but then it was exempted up until today, <laughs> you know, the temporary, temporary exemption. But we, but we said, you can exempt it. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we originally, we originally, in the original draft, we said no exemptions, but then we said, okay, well... Given, given that there's probably a reality to, yeah, you're talking about regulating entire markets and you need to think about like how this reporting would work and, and getting the right data to the right people, you know, okay, yeah, you'd be able to do one at a time. And if you need more extra, if you need extra time, then we'll just have to do oversight and that kind of thing like we've had to do with all this other stuff, which by the way, we are finally doing real estate. The Biden But with regard to obtaining the data, it would be the filing of you know, like, like you'd file on anybody, you know, like file on any client, file on anything. You'd, you'd file a, you know, one page that said, here's this, that, and the other thing. And then it'd go to FinCEN. Mm -hmm. And it would be, it would be, you know, the remit of the federal government to then pull up these reports if and when investigations are open, if and when it becomes relevant. What usually happens is you have the DOJ opening an investigation, and then they go to FinCEN and they say, hey, you got anything? And, you know, it's like we, but, but again, they're not fishing. They've already opened the investigation because they have deep suspicions that get beyond the, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the threshold that they can open an investigation. So tell us about the politics of this. So you're trying to get through this act, which is, of course, threatening quite a lot of these vested interests that you talked about. So how do you build consensus on this? What are the kind of coalitions? Uh, I mean, we're in an amazing period politically. And I, and I think that, you know, a lot of people would agree with that maybe for a different reason. But, but, I'll, but I'll say very optimistically that, Republicans and Democrats have been totally supportive. I mean, we have an endorsement from President Biden, as we've heard at this conference. We are recording this at the IACC. We have an endorsement from Secretary Pompeo. You know, we have endorsements from Trump's basically entire, President Trump's entire China team that worked on this stuff. I mean, the, the reality is we are in a phase where I think we have crossed the Rubicon on the recognition of the threat. So I used to do these podcasts years ago, and I'd be like, oh, we need to recognize it as a threat. We've recognized it as a threat. We, I think we actually see that, I mean, the president's called corruption a national security threat. It's an enormous uh, step forward. So I think we we see the existential, like the really the, the existential civil, civilizational threat that corruption, the global corruption, transnational corruption poses. But we still are kind of transforming and getting the political coalitions together to do it, to do it, to do what's necessary to fight it. And I think we so we have Democrats and Republicans, but then we still have this kind of like holdout world of like all regulation is bad. 
right? I mean, in the, in, and I mean, the reality with any regulation, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a kind of guy that, you know, I, I don't want regulation. I mean, I don't. You know, I, I'm, I'm still an American. I still believe in small government. You know, like, like, like I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, if, if the, you know, government should only be there when absolutely necessary. And I mean, that's, I, I think we've come to the point where it's absolutely necessary, you know. Um, some people don't believe that. Um, they believe that this could impose an undue burden on small business, which, which to me is a kind of an empty argument because this doesn't target small business. But I think a lot of these arguments are actually coming from the Corporate Transparency Act, from, I mean, which again, I, I imagine listeners will be familiar with, but this was the piece of legislation in 2020 that we got through in the National Defense Authorization Act um, that banned anonymous shell companies in the United States. And there's a lot of kind of bad feelings among those that opposed that because they were unable to stop it. And now they kind of feel like the rule that's being implemented, that's being developed to, inf to enforce this piece of legislation is going too far. You know, again, I, I, I don't find an awful lot of weight in these arguments, um, particularly because we're talking about a different piece of legislation. <laughs> and, but it, you know, given that a lot of legislation moves via consensus now because it's all part of these big bills. Uh, it's not too difficult to put the brakes on something. And that's kind of what's happened with this for now. So you, you mentioned the, how actually the invasion of Ukraine has changed the landscape in terms of motivations and the politics of this. But maybe we could turn to Ukraine for a while. So I think you met President Zelensky mm -hmm. um, in the last couple of months. So how do you see that going forward? What's the role of the anti-corruption community in Ukraine at the moment? And you know, looking ahead to perhaps a transition, how can the anti-corruption community help? Well, much of the Ukrainian anti-corruption community that, I'm, that I know and have worked with for years and years and years, and I you know, wrote a report back in 2015 on fighting corruption in Ukraine, and you know, it's, it's, it's incredible civil society over there. They're working on getting weapons now, <laughs> you know, you know, and, 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 I, and I guess I, I will say without any hesitation and very clearly that the most impactful and effective anti-corruption measure in the world today is HIMARS, you know, and, and, that, and that by defeating Russia, Ukraine will have made huge strides in its anti-corruption fight. And, and then the global anti-corruption fight, because Russia is an enormous spoiler for for counter kleptocracy reform. I mean, they, they, they are the, I mean, they're the kind of, you know, the, the most belligerent kleptocracy, one might say. You know, they've, they've made it their business to push their blood money into every part of our systems. And obviously, Ukraine has been no exception. Ukraine's been a primary target where they've used corruption to control Ukrainian, or, or attempt to control, rather, Ukrainian politics for quite some time. So I think it actually makes the fight much easier. Well, there'll be more opportunities, rather. Um, for reform once Russia is defeated. But, but Russia has to be defeated. And I mean, that's kind of, that's got to be priority one. So, I mean, one of the ways that the West is trying to achieve that, or at least one of the tools that the West is using, is around international sanctions for kleptocrats. And mm -hmm. these have largely been imposed uh, on Russians. I mean, what do you think of those as a, a policy? Do you think they're effective? Are there loopholes? Uh, yeah, sanctions are effective. I mean, the loopholes are loopholes we've created, basically. I mean, I mean, sanctions are individualized sanctions on like oligarchs. Very hard to enforce. Very hard to enforce because they launder the money. So I mean, it's, it's without, without the Enablers Act, without strong beneficial ownership laws and so on and so forth, you're going to be chasing these guys forever. And I mean, that's, that's kind of, you know, we've done a lot of work on kind of 
thinking about the, the confiscation of oligarch assets, right? There's this notion that like, okay, we'll confiscate oligarch assets and we'll confiscate Russian sovereign assets and then we'll pay for, you know, both weapons and eventual reconstruction of Ukraine through these seized assets. It's a great idea. And the sovereign assets is a little bit easier because we know where they are. With oligarch assets, it's, it's, quite, it's quite challenging. I mean, sanctions on, you know, sectoral sanctions, sanctions on central bank reserves, that, that kind of thing, they're really effective. I mean, we, we, I mean and, and, and by effective, I want to be very clear because, I, you know, I understand like this debate means different things to different people. A lot of people think it means behavioral change. I don't think it means behavioral change. It means reducing Russia's capacity to kill Ukrainians. And in that, in that sense, we've done a very good job, I think, um, which is to say we've done economic damage to Russia. It's biting. It will bite more. Could we be doing more? Yeah, of course. I mean, like, there's a lot of German businesses that are still doing business in Russia. Like, I mean, there's been a lot of cutouts that have been made. All of this has been pursued via the G7, you know, and I think that, you know, this administration is, has, has prioritized cohesion among the allies, which is very hard when up until very, very, very recently, the German political establishment was basically in the pocket of Russia. You know, I mean, we, we, we have this, this incredible you know, pipeline project, which followed up another pipeline project in Nord Stream, Nord Stream 2, bypassing Ukraine, bringing gas directly to Germany with Gerhard Schroeder, who is like the face of, you know, former German chancellor, the face of global corruption, the face of the compromised West, you know, as, as, the, as the figurehead of this project. So it, there could be more, but I think sanctions have been effective with regard to individualized sanctions. You, you have to have the transparency mechanisms or else you're just never going to be able to enforce them. And you, you mentioned there the kind of international picture and the importance of the G7. So who do you see as your big international allies on this? And you know, are there other people that you think should be stepping up more in terms of countries? Well, everybody needs to step up. Nobody's, nobody's done enough. The only people that have done enough are the Ukrainians. I mean, <laughs> Ukraine, Ukrainians have done more for us than we've ever done for them. I mean, they, they, have, they have effectively given democracy a mulligan. I mean, like, you know, if, 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 if Kiev had fallen... And, and, and Russia had taken all of Ukraine. China would have invaded Taiwan. Then we would have, you know, Russia would have been testing NATO, would have, would have an incursion into Lithuania or Poland or whatever's next. But I mean, you know, so, so, so Ukraine has more than risen to the challenge. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable heroism. Uh, on our part, we, none of us have, have risen to the challenge, so far as I'm concerned. I mean, we've, we've, we've done kind of the minimum. We've got them some weapons. We're doing some sanctions. Um, you know, uh, but we all need to be doing more. I mean, Poland has done exceptionally well. I mean, Poland, Poland has really risen to the challenge. Poland is, has, has been, you know, enormously effective. It is also like the staging ground for pretty much everything going to Ukraine. But I think that there's been hesitancy, you know, I guess, west of Poland. And of course, the Baltic states, you know, Czech Republic. But... The hesitancy is born of uh, all sorts of stuff. But I think, you know, one of the key reasons is the notion of, well, this will bear an economic cost, you know? And, and, and I mean, there's so many other reasons we get into, but because we're kind of on the corruption money, but, you know, it's like the reality that I think we're having trouble facing in the West in particular is the notion that to preserve our political rights and political systems, there may be a little bit of an economic cost, <laughs> In the short term, of, of course, if we lose those systems, there will be a huge economic cost in the long term. I mean, like enormous economic cost in the long term. But we just, I mean, 
the notion, I had a German uh, Beamte, bureaucrat at one point, sort of tell me that like, oh, it's going to be very hard for Germans. They're only going to be able to go on like one vacation instead of two this year. And it's just like, like, I just like, just like, look at this guy. Like, Ukrainians are living without electricity, without heating, without water. You know, I mean, like they're, they're fighting tooth and nail for their country and our freedom and the free world. Like, and this, and this gets back to fighting corruption too, because at the end of the day, like this is always the argument that we, that, that the, that the, that the entrenched interest come, well, this is going to hurt our short-term economic interests, basically. Somebody's going to, somebody is going to lose a little money on transparency and somebody's going to lose a little money on protecting democracy. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> nobody's saying this isn't going to be the case. But we protect democracy because we fight for more than short-term economic gains. We fight for long-term economic gains, <laughs> but we also fight for like you know basic political rights. Like we stand for more than going on two vacations a year, right? I mean, like this is political rights. You know, this is this is our this is our systems that over centuries people have fought and died for, been on barricades for. You know, cut kings' heads off, fought world wars, and here we are. We can't. We can't go one winter without gas. I mean, give me a break. And, and it's not even without. It's like with a with with gas that's two or three times the price that it normally is. Like two or three times. It's not twenty or thirty. And even then, that's still anyway. a big hit for people, though, isn't it? Yes, it it's is. But, it, but it's but it's something we have to. It's, it's, it, it is. It is. But it but it is what it is. You know. So can you keep the domestic momentum behind this when people are suffering for? essentially a quite international strategy. I mean, one thing that I find interesting looking at the US anti-corruption strategy is how much it's internationally oriented. Yeah. So is everything okay domestically? Is everything okay domestically? Yeah. No. <laughs> so so why the, the focus on the international? Why is that the priority? And can you kind of carry the domestic politics through that, I guess? Well, you, you have to. And I mean, the, 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 it is global corruption. I mean, we're not, we are facing a, a threat of global corruption. I mean, I, I, I do see all of these issues were not the same in the 80s, right? I mean, prior to the advent of the end of the Cold War, the globalization of the financial system, you know, the integration with authoritarian regimes, this wasn't the same level of problem. I mean, so much of this is born of totally international mechanisms. Like when you, when you look at transnational money laundering, it's not a purely American thing. Yeah, American anonymous trusts are used, American anonymous shell companies are used, and American lawyers are used, but there's BVI shell companies, Cypriot banks, Maltese banks, Swiss banks. You know, the, the origin of the funds is usually Russia or China or Iran or, you know, so, so I mean, it must be international. If it's not international, you're going to fail. You're doomed to fail. Okay, that's great. Um, Paul, we need to wrap up. Um, we usually ask people, so we've got a number of our listeners are researchers of corruption. So what do you think are the topics that anti-corruption researchers should be working on? What are the real priority areas where we need more evidence or we need to know more? To me, it's all about the enablers. So I, I, I think that, you know, research on law firms, business of law firms in particular, um, research on how enablers open our systems to these <clears throat> individuals, research on lobbyists. I mean, I mean sort of mercenary lobbyists, who's taking whose money, how we got in this position. I mean, this is kind of a, in one sense, this is a, a, a pretty early stage of the industry. I mean, again, this is stuff that, like in the 80s, you had like Roger Stone and Paul Manafort doing this stuff. 
and they were like the only ones. You know, I mean, and now it's like everybody's working for authoritarian mm -hmm. regimes. It's like, how, how did this happen? You know, where did this come from? So it's, 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 it's really, there's so much, I think, work to be done on this kind of like transnational corruption and how it expresses itself. Um, I actually think, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an aspiring corruption scholar myself. And of the corruption studies work I've read, I think a lot of it is a little bit too nationally focused. In mm -hmm. one sense. There's always kind of this look at, you know, okay, we're going to build an anti-corruption commission here. Oh, commissions don't work. Okay, we're going to do it through, we got to fight collective action problem or whatever. You know, okay, that doesn't work. You know, it's like, okay. But the problem is that this isn't a national issue. <laughs> it's a transnational issue. It's a global issue. Um, and if we're not confronting it as a global issue, we're going to fail. Fantastic. That's a, a good point to end on, I think. Thanks so much again for, for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.